0: This is Mike from the internet. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, man? How you doing?
1: Very good. You ready to roll?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: Perfect timing with the NBA playoffs just starting and the Knicks somehow in home court. Uh, Mind-blowing. Did you see the scene outside the garden two nights ago?
0: Unbelievable. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It's so exciting, you know, because I, like, you know, I grew up with that kind of atmosphere, you know, in in the 90s, and where it was playoffs every year and, and. The oh garden was crazy, and uh, like I tell younger people, I'm like, you have no idea what it's like when the Knicks are in the playoffs, and the Knicks are good, and um, it's it's just so great to to see that again, and see uh you see LeBron tweeting about how loud the garden was, it was it's 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 crazy, it's so much fun.
1: And now you grew up in Queens, right?
0: So I lived in Queens, until I was eight, and then I moved out to Long Island.
1: Because I, I know the area codes Long Island. Now, why down in Texas? What brought you down there?
0: Uh, my wife got a great job offer down here, and uh, I was sick of the cold winters, and <laughs> said, "Let's do it. Let's try it."
1: What food do you miss the most from the Big Apple?
0: Bagels, definitely bagels. Um, believe it or not, I have a really, I have a really good pizza place that is like New York quality, um, but you can't get a good bagel down here.
1: And now, what do you miss the least from the Big Apple? Obviously, the cold weather. What else?
0: Uh... Hmm, that's a good question. Um, just the kind of the chaos a little bit. Um, you know, living in, I lived in Manhattan for, I guess, 13 years before I moved down here. And, and it's just, you know, I sound like an old man here, but it, it just, it's loud and it's noisy and it's, you know, crowded. And, and uh, what I like about Austin is there's still a lot going on. There's still a lot of culture, but it's a little more laid back.
1: Before you wrote this book, I know you wrote The Bleacher Report. This is your first-time yeah. author. Did you enjoy the process of writing this book? Of course, we're talking about the Knicks of the 90s, Ewing, Oakley, Starks, and the Brawl. Is it almost one and all? Did you enjoy the process?
0: I did. I did very much. Um, you know, it, it was difficult. It was challenging. There were parts that I didn't enjoy, but um, this book, for me, was it was very much a labor of love. You know, I, I, like I said, I grew up on those teams, um, so it was, it was really fun to kind of relive that experience and... And to learn so much more about those teams and those guys and, and to talk to many of them, um, was quite a thrill for me. So I did. I, I it was you know, it was challenging, but I but I did enjoy it.
1: Writing a book like this about a special time in the hearts of New Yorkers, did you have a difficult time like fitting in ten years of the ups and downs, dramas and heartache all in one book? Yes. Yeah.
0: You know, I I, I One of the I tell people maybe the hardest thing about writing the book was deciding what to leave out because I could have I could have written a a few hundred more pages, you know, and like, you know, when you you get into it, like there are so many little anecdotes and details that I discovered that I found fascinating. But um, I had to kind of remind myself that I had to leave out because I had to remind myself that, you know, I'm obsessed with this this project, you know. <laughs> like, I, and I'm so knee deep in it that stuff that I find interesting, I don't know that your average reader will find interesting. And some things you leave out just to you want to kind of keep the keep the book moving, keep the book flowing, and, and you don't want to get bogged down in too much detail. So, um, yeah, it, it was hard to to get 10 years into
1: into a book. Well, I'm glad you just said that because being a first-time author again, did you have a difficult time juggling a book like this with telling game stories, obviously adding the stats? You don't want to bore the reader. Like me, I want to read every stat, but you don't want to bore a casual Nick fan reader with. Ewing had 18, 14, and 4. Did you have a a tough time juggling that? Because I thought you did a great job with it, not giving every single stat, but giving enough to give a full picture of it. Well,
0: thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, I did... I did have a hard time juggling that. Um, it, it's kind of your audience too. You know, I kind of, I wanted to, I want to write a book that would really resonate with, with hardcore Nick fans. Um, but I, I, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be interesting for, for people that weren't hardcore Nick fans as well. You know, people that just, they're just maybe casual basketball fans. Um, so, That that is a constant balance of how much detail do I put in um, and and just trying to keep those two audiences in mind and, and trying to maintain that balance.
1: You had me laughing in the beginning of the book because I had Charles Oakley on my podcast and I was geeking out. I'm like, I'm sitting here with Charles Oakley having a beer. It's crazy. And he said it best and he said to me too, the 90s Knicks were always one blank away. One player, one possession, one win, one game. Reading the book, going year by year, he was 100% right obviously. What's the main one thing that you think, coming from a fan, that they miss the most?
0: Yeah, it's, man, I mean, there was a lot of heartbreak because we were so close. And yeah, Oak is, Oak's the best, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he just, it's I, unbelievable. He just, has, he just has a way with words. Like, he just, I, <laughs> I, I, I saw an interview with him where he said that, and I was like, oh, wow, that's just that's just perfect, you know, really summed it up so well. Um, I, I think the biggest thing I missed <clears throat> um, really was that second star. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, especially when, you know, I, I always say the kind of the tragedy of Ewing's career is, I think, when he finally had enough talent around him to win it, his body was breaking down, you know, in like 99 and 2000, when he had been in Houston, Sprewell and Campy. And and that was really, I think, the most talent he had. And, and he was old at that point and, and didn't it wasn't the same player. Um, so I think really in his prime, they missed that second star. You know, uh, <clears throat> um, you look at most championship teams, almost all championship teams have – at least two hall of famers on them he was the only hall of famer there you know and even the closest they came was 94 of course when they went to game seven in the finals and that year starks and oakley actually were both all-stars but that that was the lone all-star appearance for each of them um you know they they weren't near hall of fame caliber players they were very good players but they missed they missed that that consistent second great player and particularly, I think, a shooter, a scorer, um, you know, a really good two guard. And we saw that, we saw that in Game 7, of course, because Starks was, was, for the most of that series, was great. But he was very hot and cold. And I think Starks, ideally, was a six-man. Um, but they didn't have that, that guy who you could count on to score 20 points every night to, to help Patrick out.
1: Yeah, and I want to stay with Patrick for a second because during this time, whenever you talk about the 90s Knicks, which obviously everyone's talking about now because of the playoffs, it's Mason Oakley-Starks, but obviously Ewing was a centerpiece. You sometimes forget, even me as a huge fan, how dominant and recognizable he was in high school. Now, I didn't know him in high school or college. What are your thoughts about early Ewing? Because his dominance was forgotten, I think, a lot by because he never won a championship. Do you agree with that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think he's the most underrated superstar in new york sports history and um he was i mean people forget or you know a lot of people are just too young to know what a huge deal he was when he came into the nba you know he was he he was at georgetown he went to the final four three times won one championship people were saying this guy is an ex bill russell like it wasn't like can he win bring a championship to new york it was how many championships is he going to win in new york and you know, he was so recognizable, too. It was such a big deal in the next one, that lottery, because back then, guys stayed four years. You know, maybe a uh, few guys, Michael left after three, Magic left after two, but for the most part, guys stayed four years, as did Patrick. So imagine if you saw LeBron in college for four years, or you saw Zion in college for four years. Like, the hype was so big on those guys, as it was, but if you had seen them dominate for four years, not only would there have been the hype, but everyone would have known them. Would, there would have been even that much more excitement. And so that's what it was like with Patrick. And I think, I think that worked to his detriment in a way, because <clears throat> expectations were so high and really unfairly high. And so he had such a great career. He was such a great player, as you said, but I think in part because People were expecting so much of him. Um, I think I think he wasn't fully appreciated for what he did
1: do. The leader of this group, Pat Riley, he comes in as Hollywood, but deep down it seems like he's this gritty defensive first guy. Was that what he wanted to be, or did he adapt because the truth, the Knicks weren't a running gun Hollywood showtime team? Did he adapt to that?
0: Yeah, I think it was I think it was a combination of both. I think um Riley's you know, Riley won four championships with the Lakers and with the up-and-down, fast-paced Showtime style. Um, But ultimately, they got knocked off by the Pistons, by the bad-boy Pistons. And I think part of it is Riley thought that was the way the league was going, that you had to win by being physical and tough and play hard-nosed defense. And so part of it was that he kind of thought that's how you win now in the league. And the other thing is you hit the nail on the head that that was his personnel. You know, he didn't have, he came to New York and he didn't have magic Johnson running the point, you know, um, I mean, magic is probably the greatest fast break point guard we've, that's ever lived. Um, and he didn't have, you know, a forward like James worthy who could run the floor and finish like that. He had a bunch of big, tough, physical guys. And so, um, it was a combination of the two it was it was he he kind of thought that's how you win a league and he, he he coached to the personnel that he had
1: you really you you brought out my inner fan with riley because i remember the no layup rule no fraternizing the fine for helping a player up but it seems like he got it like he was ahead of his time like you mentioned that he invented like the plus minus system he set up like group organizations what made the players blind to everything riley said
0: <clears throat> yeah that's that was very interesting to me because we think of certain guys as like you know, as Jeff Van Gundy's one, you know, out of modern day like a spolstra. You think of certain guys as like as nuts or or film guys, you know, who just are obsessed with you know, or in the office all day, all night, watching film, um, just grinding. And but Riley had that kind of Hollywood image and you thought, you know, okay, he's you know, yeah, he's a great coach, but it's more you know, motivating and, and that. But, you know, through my research and talking to people, I realized what a grinder he was, that he was just like those guys I mentioned, that he stayed up all night watching film, that he was completely obsessed with, with details. And that kind of thing resonated with his players. I mean, they, to a man, all of them said, you know, Riley was tough, he was demanding, he was even cruel at times. But they always believed that every single thing that he did was geared towards winning, you know, and and as much as he was showtime and he was flashy on the outside to them. And in the locker room, there was no flash. There was no BS. It was all about winning. The other thing guys really appreciated about him was, yes, he was extremely demanding, but he was very honest with them. Extremely honest. You know, if he wasn't going to play you, he told you he wasn't going to play you. If you were messing up or whatever it was, he let you know. There was things didn't go unsaid, um, Tension and grudges didn't fester. Riley addressed everything. Uh, I talked to Doug Christie, who, who was with the Knicks then, and he said his first day with the team, he was really excited when he got traded to the Knicks. And he thought it was going to be a great opportunity for him to get a lot of playing time. And his first day in training camp, he sat down with Riley, and Riley told him, "Listen, you're not going to play at all this year. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're not. You just. You're not going to be part of the rotation. But." if you work your ass off and you do the things I tell you to do, you can make yourself into a player in this league and have a nice long career. And Christy said, you know, on the one hand, he was devastated because, you know, he was hoping, he was, he was hoping to be a big part of the team, but he said he appreciated the honesty, you know, as in, instead of Riley saying, Oh, you, you know, you might play or, or kind of being vague about it. Um, and, and, Christy just stewing on the bench, and being angry. He said, "I, I knew I knew going into it where I stood, and I, I took that as I, I I took that as an opportunity to work hard and become a better player." And Christy told me still to this day, anytime he sees Riley, he thanks him profusely for building him into an NBA player
1: and a very good NBA player. He was really good, Christy. After that,
0: yeah, absolutely, yeah. He made like a couple uh, All Defense teams.
1: We can't break down every big game of the 90s, of course, but I want to touch on a few players and some key moments. The player who I think gets lost, for me, again, when talking about the early team, was Xavier McDaniel. I actually, when I was reading, I'm like, oh, I forgot the X-Man was here. What did he bring early on, and what type of void did he leave when he left?
0: Yeah, the X-Man was, it's crazy, because he was only there for one year, and and a lot of people remember it so fondly. Um, X-Man came in, and, you know, Riley was really wanting him to be the kind of second scorer to Patrick. <clears throat> and X, at that point in his career, he, he had been an all-star with, with Sam, Seattle, um, but then he had a he had major knee injury and wasn't quite the same player anymore. And uh, I think the Knicks weren't sure exactly what they were getting when they brought him in, but they brought him in. He had a very so-so regular season, didn't do very much. And then in the playoffs, it was like, the old X man, and um, he he was great in the first round against Detroit, and really proved himself against the Bulls in the second round. Um, he was fantastic. X was X could score inside and outside. You know, he, he was a pretty good athlete and he was very physical, and he got in Scottie Pippen's head big time. But he really he really rattled Scottie and he Did it really by by pushing Scotty around, being very physical with him, and X told me he said he said the NBA is about matchups, and he said there are some guys I didn't match up well with. He mentioned James That's Worthy and Mark Aguirre, he said those guys would kick his ass, but he said he matched up really well with Scotty because Scotty didn't like to he didn't like it when you got physical with him. He didn't like to bang down low and actually back him down down low and, and really bang with him and he, i mean he he basically played scotty to a standstill in that in that series um he was just fantastic and, and the Knicks shocked everyone that year by pushing the bulls to seven games and then and then he left and everyone was shocked and and disappointed um including riley um you know there's some check it's the check who was the president of the team, and X-Man have kind of different takes on what happened. Um, part of it is that the Knicks were reluctant to give him a lot of money because he had this lingering knee issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but X left, and they really replaced him with Charles Smith. They traded for Charles Smith. And Smith just didn't have that toughness. Uh, you know, you, know, you asked what, what, what they missed when X left. It was not another tough guy. You know, and and and, they ha- and then Knicks had plenty of toughness, obviously, you know, with Patrick and and Oak and Mason. Um, but X-Man was different than those guys that he could score. And so X could score and had the toughness and they didn't really have that. You know, Smith could score some but didn't have the toughness. Oak and Mace, especially Mace at that point in his career, were very tough but didn't score. And so he brought it. He brought a new dimension, a different dimension at that small forward spot. And there are a lot of people who think the Knicks would have won the championship in the next two years if, if they had kept X.
1: Do you think, because that year, because I remember re- reading about it after you mentioned that, I went back, I started looking at everything you talked about. And that year, I remember the WFAN, everybody was screaming for a shooter. They wanted Mitch Richmond, Dennis Scott, uh, Steph Curry's dad. But they ended up with Ronaldo Blackman, and then they let... They get uh, Charles Smith over Harvey Grant. Was Harvey Grant, would he have been a better fit? And was Charles Smith soft, in your opinion, those two questions? Because I think anyone, Paul, would have been considered soft next to Oakley, Ewing, and Mason, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's, that's a fair point. Um,
1: yeah, so first one, Har- uh, Harvey Grant.
0: Um, Harvey might have been – I think Harvey would have been a better fit. You know, a lot of – the a lot of problem with Smith was, I think he was a bad fit for a number of reasons, his personality, his style of play. The other thing is Charles Smith was 6'11", and because the Knicks have Oakley, Oakley was entrenched as the power forward, and Mason got a lot of minutes at power forward. So by default, they, they had to play Smith at small forward. And he was 6'11", and he just didn't, you know, move well enough to, to guard small forwards. Scotty Pippen, for example, um, it was, that was a lot to ask of him. He wasn't built that way. That was not his game. And so I, I think Harvey probably would have been a better fit from that standpoint in that he was more of a natural small forward. Um, they did try and get Harvey Grant. They, he was a restricted free agent. They made him a, a, a pretty significant offer. And the wit, I guess there were the bullets there and the bullets matched the offer. So they did try, um, is Charles Smith soft, uh, I feel bad, <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> it's you know really like because it's, it's like there's no worse word in sports, right? And for it's guys like me
1: and you, soft. Paul, to call someone soft, like who the hell are we?
0: <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, and like, um, and, and and I think I think Smith gets a bad rap in a sense, um, but he was, yeah, I mean, he was a little soft, yeah he he was you know he was he was a finesse player he didn't like he didn't like the bang down low he didn't um that just wasn't his game uh i think you know i think i think he would have had a better career frankly playing now you know whereas where the game is not as physical um and he could have used his skill a little more because he was very skilled but no he did he didn't like the
1: bang how many of these games did you go back and watch?
0: Um, a lot, <laughs> a lot, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, all the, all the 94 finals, um, a number of the, the, the matchups with the Pacers and the Bulls and the Heat. Um, so yeah, a lot of them.
1: Let me ask you this, cause obviously we both still watch basketball now. It's two different sports now. What's one thing you prefer with the game of the nineties and one thing you prefer of the games today?
0: Um, I think when the 90s, I I like the physicality, you know, there was something fun about that. Um, You know, the the other thing I I really, in going back and and researching, I really miss, I think the game misses, the rivalries. I, I don't think you have the same rivalries today. And, you know, part of that, part of that is based on the physicality. It's not as rough as it was, you know, guys are more friendly than they used to be. Um, I also think part of that is there's a lot more player movement now, so you don't have the same roster continuity. You know, like when you look back at, at like the Knicks Pacers, for example, they they met six times from 1993 to 2000 in the playoffs. It's the same guys a lot of it. You know, it's it's Ewing and Oakley and Starks, and Oakley and Starks left at the end, but you know a lot, Mason was there for a lot of it. Um, you know, on, on Indiana's side, it was. Reggie was always there and Smiths and the Davis brothers. So you had, it was like year after year meeting the same groups in the playoffs or you'll get, so it just created, I think a lot more. And then, you know, a lot, there there was such physicality and fights involved. It created, I think a greater intensity that the game misses a little bit now. Um, What I like better now is guys are able to showcase their skills a little more. You know, um, Steph Curry, Dame Lillard, Kyrie, those guys, those guys would be great players at any time, but they couldn't do the kind of things that they do now back then. You know, there was, there was hand checking. You could hand check guys. So especially with a slight guy like Curry, you'd be able to push him around a lot. And mm-hmm. he wouldn't with Kyrie, they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't be able to showcase their skill in the same way. So I think, I think, there's more skill on display now and that's a little more fun.
1: Let me ask you this. You just mentioned that it was very surprising that Knicks pushed the Bulls to Game 7 and the next year, you know, expectations were high. Writing this book, there are like four, and maybe we're being Knicks-centric, but there's four like main points. It is the, you know, the LJ four-point play, the Miller choke thing, the Charles Smith missed layup, and, you know, when he was blocked four times in six seconds. What moment was talked about the most in the book? When you, While you're talking to people and then fans' reaction, what moment Throughout the whole '90s, is talked about the most.
0: Yeah, uh, probably Charles Smith. Mm. Probably Charles Smith. There, there was just something um, so devastating about that. I think I think it's taken on a, a kind of a symbolic nature. The, the Smith thing, you know, I, we wanted so badly to beat the Bulls, so badly, and to beat Jordan the Bulls, and we came close a couple times, and. You know, I think that that Charles Smith sequence has kind of come to represent our inability to get over the top. You know, or when people think of our being unable to beat the Bulls, you, you just you naturally flash to that Charles Smith sequ- sequence, and and that's why I said too. I feel I think he gets a bad rap in a way. I mean, like even if you break down that game in and of itself, you know, the Knicks shot twenty or thirty-five of free throws. Mm-hmm. That's that's awful you know, if, they <laughs> shot, if they shot just a regular free throw percentage, they win that game and it never comes down to Charles Smith. You know, and, and, and even if that specific they got badly out rebounded in that game, um, that specific play was a pick and roll with Starks and Ewing and Ewing. Ewing had the ball at the top of the key and just tripped over his own feet and lost the ball and it got they went to Smith. So, I mean, Patrick is somewhat to blame for that for that possession. Um, and, and, you know, there were other reasons that they lost to the Bulls in other years, but I think people just think of them not being the Bulls and they just think of, of Charles Smith.
1: I forgot they were up 2-0 in that series too. So that made it hurt even more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they had home court. So, you know, that was game five, game seven. If they, if they won, if they won that game, they're, they're guaranteed at least the game seven and it would have been at the garden.
1: Researching this book, Paul. How much fun was it going back and reading and writing about '94, the Rangers going to the Stanley Cup, the whole OJ thing, and of course, using Ewing raising his arms and taking the Knicks to the finals. How much fun was that time?
0: It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and it was. It's interesting because you, on the one hand, you're like reliving this memorable time from your childhood, Um, and on the other hand, like learning so much new, so much new new information about it as well um the OJ thing was in particular was just wild i mean there's that, just that's one of those days where you like you just i'll never forget where I was when that was happening um it was just such a bizarre bizarre event that I remember being torn because this is like this is like the craziest story we've ever seen in our lives like you cannot believe what's going on. And you, you're like drawn to it and want to watch it. And at the same time, like my New Nick's still so completely obsessed with playing game five of the NBA finals. <laughs> and it's, it's like, like, this is not the night for this to happen. So you're really, you're really torn. And, and it's fascinating to, to get some of the inside stories, um, from the players, you know, what, what they knew and, and when they knew it. And, and, um, and, and how I, – I just – I love the story from Kenny Smith about, um, you know, he's, he's in the huddle and they're in the huddle. It's game five in the finals. And they're t- and Kenny Smith is telling the guys, like he saw on the screen at the scores table, that OJ is on the run. And Riti, the coach, comes in and says, he's like, Kenny, are you kidding me? Like, focus on the game. It's game five of the finals. Let's go. And then, you know, talks about a play or whatever. And the guys are heading back out to the court. And Rudy T. grabs Kenny and says, Kenny, is OJ really on the run? (laughs) (laughs) So that was just wild. And it it was, I mean, you hit on it too. It was was such a cool time for New York because, um, I mean, I was, I actually grew up an Islander fan, um, but it was, uh, it was every night at the Garden. You know, you you the Knicks and the Rangers every night. And um, uh, just New York was, was on fire. It was was, was so exciting. It was just such an exciting time to be in and around the city.
1: The OJ Chase game. I remember, obviously, everyone remembers watching in their living room. You casually said the game was tied. I think it was 62 going into the fourth quarter. Paul, was it me or weren't these games so exciting? Because I'm reading it and you're like, oh, Knicks Heat were 71-71 with four minutes left. I'm like... Now if you told someone that now you'd be like, "Oh my god, that's the most boring." I'm like, "No, that was the most exciting thing. You couldn't even move. Are we wrong or are we just like old generational guys?" No, I think it was.
0: I think I mean in a different way, but I, I think it was so exciting in large part because the scoring was so low. So because it was so hard to get a bucket and every point was was so valuable, right? If you, if you're if the games are in the 70s as opposed to 130 to 128, like Every point you score means that much more. And so it, it was more exciting in that sense, I think. And I don't know. I, I, I just think uh, I think because points were harder to come. by. I mean, it's extreme. But like you know, if you watch hockey, for example, or soccer, any goal is, you know, you go fucking crazy. Excuse me. I don't know. No, you go. Yeah, you
1: yeah,
0: yeah, you <laughs> go fucking crazy at any goal because games are three to two or two to one. Obviously, it's not that extreme, but when points are harder to come by, they're more exciting when you get them.
1: In retrospect, uh, stories take on a life of their own. Everyone still talks about Starks missing the shot in Game 6 when he was blocked, followed by the 2 for 18. Everyone knows 2 for 18 and 0 for 11 from 3 before shooting 11 three-pointers was considered normal. Riley, I want to get your take. Is Riley always flip flopped? What is your take talking to other players or other fans and stuff about that game? Should Riley have taken him out? What, what's the your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, you know, people have different different takes. Um, you know, Checkets and Grunfeld, kind of the next manager, both told me they thought Riley should have taken him out. Um, when you talk to other players. Um, They've had differing views. Uh, Some thought that Riley should have taken him out for just a couple minutes to let him kind of calm down and clear his head. Um, Some thought he should have left him in there. Uh, So you have – it's kind of all over the place. Um, I think it's easy to say he should have taken him out um, because, for one, it didn't work out, and – and uh but i'm of the opinion that he shouldn't have I, I i don't think he should have and i think for a couple of reasons one stark got you there um he was fantastic in that series games two through six he might have been the series mvp if they won that series um he Starks has scored double digits in the fourth quarter of the last three games so he had kind of got hot in the fourth quarter um, and he was the kind of guy who could be shooting, you know, two for fifteen, and suddenly get hot. And so, um, from that standpoint, I, I think it was, I think it made sense to leave him. in. the other thing is, I really don't think there was a viable alternative. And you know, people always talk to—they had Orlando Blackman and and Hubert Davis on the bench, and people typically talk to Blackman, point to Blackman, because he had a great career. He was, a, he was an all-star a few times, scored a lot of points in the NBA. Um, but, one, he, w- he was really at the tail end of his career. He had hurt his back right when he came to New York and wasn't the same player anymore. And But even more so, he 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 had played one minute in the finals, not one, and very few minutes in the entire playoffs. So I, I don't care how much of a veteran you are and experienced you are, How can you take a guy who really hasn't played in months and stick him into the fourth quarter of game seven of the NBA finals? It just, I I just don't think that's realistic. You could fault Riley for not keeping Blackman in the rotation in the playoffs, you know, for not, for not having Blackman ready to step in in such a situation. I think that's an argument that you can make, but I think in that moment, I don't think there was a real alternative. And uh, and Huber Davis basically told me himself that he was overwhelmed by the moment. You know, he wasn't playing anymore at that point. He had played a lot early in the playoffs, and he said his confidence was shot. He was overwhelmed by the moment, and he was disappointed Riley to play him, but understands it.
1: Mentioning Riley, you had a stat that blew my mind. Four years under Riley, I wrote it down, Two twenty, 220, uh, two hundred twenty three and one hundred five, with one superstar. That that's abnormal. That those numbers, two hundred
0: twenty three wins. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, you, you know, to get that to get that team in 94 to within one game of the finals. Um, obviously Riley has a lot of rings. Uh, you know, he won, he won in Miami and he won in in L A. Um, but I, I, I think. I think that Nick team might have been his best coaching job, I really do, because he he didn't have, you know, when he won a, when he won a ring in with Miami as the coach, he had he had Shaq and Dwayne Wade, and when he won in L.A., he had Magic and Kareem and Worthy, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, I mean, you and I might have been able to win a championship with those teams, <laughs> but uh, but in New York, like you know, like we said, yeah, he had Ewing, and then you know, Starks and Oakley and Mason and 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 managed to, you know, in I mean nineteen ninety three they won sixty games with that lineup. It was really incredible.
1: It seems that the trend for the past fifteen years for the Knicks was we're gonna get this free agent in two years. In three years we're gonna get LeBron. Let's clear space. And it seemed very similar in the summer of ninety six. It was I know Jordan wasn't realistic. Shaq and Alonzo, Reggie, uh, Tim Hardaway, Matumbo, Juwan Howard, they had a, a three first round picks. Did they miss the boat back then with all those free agents also?
0: Um I don't know that they missed the boat because I, I think I think I don't think you know the the biggest ones obviously were Michael and Shaq and I, I don't I don't think that was gonna happen. I mean Michael was Michael of course stayed with Chicago and Shaq they had Patrick, and so that was kind of a weird situation. Um, I don't know. You know, they they they, they did okay. Al, Alan Houston was their first was their first target, really. Um, was their number one target, and they got him. Um, a lot of people wanted or assumed they would pursue Reggie Miller, um, and Reggie was really their second choice, just because Alan was like seven years younger than Reggie, um, and they wanted somebody who was going to be there long term. Um, I, you know, you could argue that maybe they should have pursued Reggie more, although I'm skeptical that Reggie would have actually left Indiana. Um, I, I think they did okay that summer. You know, I, I think um, shooting guard was their biggest priority, and, and, you know, Alan Houston was very good for them for a while. Uh, they could have... You know, point guard was an issue. Um, at that point, Derek Harper was old, and, and they let him go. Mm-hmm. And... There were some better point guards available. Um, Kenny Anderson is one. Um, but they they basically, I talked to Arnie Grunfeld about this, they basically decided their biggest need was a shooting guard and point guard was kind of secondary, and that's how they were going to spend their money. They didn't have the money to get a top shooting guard and a top point guard, so they, they prioritized shooting guard. And I think they did okay. Um, you know, the draft, in retrospect, is disappointing because they had three picks in that draft and that draft is considered one of the greatest drafts in league history. There are numerous Hall of Famers from that draft. Right? Iverson, Kobe, Steve
1: Nash. Ray Allen. Um, Antoine Walker. Yeah. it's Aubrey, yeah.
0: Paul. On and on. Jermaine O'Neal. Uh, and one guy, who actually, Ben Wallace, is in the Hall of Fame now, went undrafted in that draft. <laughs> um, which is crazy. So, there were a lot of really good players and the Knicks had three picks, but they were they didn't really mess it up. Um, they just kind of got unlucky in that. So they picked eighteenth, nineteenth, and twenty-one were their three picks. And uh, and really all those guys that we mentioned, Stephen Ash, I don't know if we didn't mention him, all those guys that we mentioned were gone already. Um, Grunfeld had tried to had tried to trade up. I tried to package two of them to get into at least the top 15 and couldn't get any, didn't find any takers. Um, and so it, it was disappointing. I don't think they missed on anyone big. I guess you could say Ben Wallace, but no one drafted him at all on any round. Um, and, you know, it's not like they passed on a Steve Nash or a Jermaine O'Neal or something like that. Those guys were all gone. And unfortunately, you know, you hope three picks, 18, 19, 21, none of them are that high, but you would hope one out of three, at least, would turn into a, a very good player. And, unfortunately, none of them were really that good.
1: And, finally, you can't talk about the 90s Knicks without Anthony Mason. And you said it, that he was ahead of a t- his time. He was basically a positionless player, which is now is norm. One, what would you learn about Mason that you didn't know? And uh, the other thing was, when they traded for Larry Johnson, Paul, I never in a million years— Knew how close him and Mason were in stats. So in retrospect, was that a good move getting LJ? Yeah, I think so.
0: Um, Mace Mace was a very unique player um, and a unique guy too. Uh, I, went, I think a kind of cool thing I learned about him was you know you know how tough he was and intimidating, um, but something I learned about him and Oakley for that matter is is they both had really soft, sensitive sides and we're very generous in a number of ways and i, I love this story that the old Nick ball, ball boy told me and one of Macy's first games at the garden right before tip-off he gave the ball boy uh a piece of paper with a phone number on it and said this is my mother's phone number uh please call her tell her i love her and i wish she was here and it's just uh, just just kind of show the soft side of mace um so that was, I, I like that. As far as, you know, the trade, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think you could definitely argue. I think I would argue that Mason was the better player at that point. Mm-hmm. I think he was. Of course, LJ was a beast when he first came to the league, but he was diminished when the Knicks got him. His, his, he had a serious back injury, and he just couldn't jump or explode like he used to. Um, I, think, I think Mace was a little better. I think he was a better defender. Um, and he could he, you know, especially like you said, he could do a lot of things on the floor. Um, LJ might have been a better fit at that point. Mace had kind of he'd worn out his welcome a little bit. Mm-hmm. He was a very difficult guy to get along with. Uh, difficult guy to coach. Um, and you know, as Van Gunn explained it to me, he said they felt like they needed a little more offense from that position and, and shooting in particular. And LJ definitely had more range than Mace. He turned into a pretty good three-point shooter, um, which Mace could never do. And so I, you could argue maybe LJ was a little better fit, um, but I, I think Mace was probably the better player.
1: As the 90s comes to an end, you know, uh, no Oakley, no Starks. like It can be in Spreewell the Allen Houston run of the LJ four-point play and Ewing leaving the bench. Ewing leaving the bench, is that the biggest what-if in Knicks history?
0: Oh, man. Um, to me, the biggest what-if is what if what if on didn't block Starks' oh, shot okay, at okay. the game six in the final. So I would say that's the biggest what-if. But, yeah, there, there are a lot of what-ifs from those 90s. And, and, and Ewing leaving the bench is, is a big one. You know, those guys... A lot of those guys think they were going to beat the Bulls that year. They think that was their year. Um, now who knows, right? I mean, it's the Bulls, It's Michael and the Bulls. Um, but that team, that team was very good. Starks told me it was the best offensive team that he played on in New York. Um, you know, they kind of that was the first year after they added Larry Johnson and Allen Houston and Childs, and there was more firepower. You know, Starks was coming off the bench now and. Al Houston was a better shooter than anybody they had on those earlier teams. They were really too deep at every position. Um, it was really kind of last year that Patrick was either in his prime or very close to his prime. After that was when the injuries started mounting. The next season he broke his wrist, and then it was his Achilles. And, and so that was the last time you kind of had prime you in. So they were really good, and they, they started slowly that year, I think in part because they had three new starters, or so a lot of new pieces, and, yeah. but they, they really turned it on. They're a stretch where I think they went 38-6 and six over a period of time. And they played really well against the Bulls and matched up well against the Bulls. They, they split the season series with the Bulls that year, and including they won a game in Chicago on the last game of the season a game that the Bulls really wanted because it would have given them 70 wins and it would have tied the 86 Celtics for their best home record ever at 40 and one. So the, the Bulls really wanted that game and the Knicks beat them in Chicago. And, um, yes, yeah, so, you know, some of those guys, uh, you know, Van Gundy is still haunted by the fact that they, that those guys left the bench and, um, you know, I mean, Dave Checkets told me we would have won the championship that year. A lot of the guys feel that way, that that, that was their year.
1: And then, you know, we fin- finish up with the Spurs. Uh, that series, it's not even talked about. It's so funny. It reminds me a lot of the 99 Yankees, Braves series, that the Yankees won 96, 98, right. 99. No one even talks about, no one talks about the Knicks. They got outmatched, out- embarrassed. That was the end of the era. In your wildest dreams, could you ever imagine that was it? That was the last great Huge game for the Knicks was in '99.
0: No, never, never, never could imagine. <laughs> never could imagine. I mean, it, it, it's been obviously it's been a terrible, you know, 20 years um, until this year, but it was just a terrible run under any circumstances. But for for me, for people of a certain age, you know, I, I grew up with those teams of the late '80s and the '90s, and you know, they made the playoffs 13 years in a row, from the time that I was, I don't know, 10 to 23, you know, something like that. In that, in, in that range for me, or nine to 22, whatever it was, and so that was all I knew. You know, that I just, I just assumed this is how it goes. You know, you, you go to the playoffs every year, and <laughs> and a, a lot of those years, you're serious championship contenders. I I, I took it for granted because I didn't know any better. So. No, not, as you said, not in my wildest dreams could I have imagined what would happen.
1: Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Sure. You and I are sitting at a bar here in New York City. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Hmm.
0: That would text me right back. So I have some people on my phone, but I don't know if they would text me right back.
1: Would they text (laughs) you back by the end of the night? We get to the bar at 7. By 11 o'clock, are they going to text you back?
0: Um... I think Jeff Van Gundy would text me back. Oh, that's a
1: great one. Yeah. Once you back one sporting event you wish you could have witnessed live. Any sport, anytime. The
0: fight of the century, Ali Fra- the first Ali Frazier fight.
1: You know what's funny? I've asked 300 guests on the show. No one's ever said that one. That's a great answer.
0: Really? What is, is there a common one?
1: Uh no, there's no real common one. what sport? You know, lot, I got a lot of Jackie Robinson's first game. I get a lot of Babe Ruth's cold home run. Yeah, um, once. Jordan's shot over the uh Jazz, Jordan's shot over the Cavs comes up a lot. Oh yeah. Oh, I like your yeah, answer. I mean, there's a lot. A ma- yeah. yeah, there's I mean, a mil- there's a million day, of it. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh yeah. how about one player you thought was going to be special but for one reason or another it didn't pan out?
0: Christoph Porzingis.
1: Oh, you know what? <laughs> so that was a really good answer and you were on point with that one. And how about one person you wanted to interview for the book but didn't get a chance to? Ryland. Definitely Ryland. And he just he wasn't he wasn't having it.
0: Yeah, he just, he just doesn't really do many interviews these days. He's just uh, he just doesn't do many interviews, and, and uh, the very few that he does tend to be with people that he's had like a long term relationship with and knows very well.
1: And knows the questions they're going to ask Listen, Paul, I'm going to be honest with you. I try to read a yeah. book. I try to read a book a week. This is one of the best books I've read, and not just because it's the Knicks book. Just because it's so nostalgic, it brought you back to. I remember sitting on the couch. I remember where I was for some of those games—the Allen Houston float and all that stuff. So, give the plug for the book. It was one of the best books I read all year. Hopefully, the reception has been awesome. So, just give the plug where everyone can follow you, buy the book, and all that jazz.
0: Oh, thanks. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for those kind words, and thanks for having me on. Um, the book is called uh, "The Knicks of the '90s: Ewing, Oakley, Starks, and the Brawlers That Almost Won It All." Um, you could find it, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, all those places you buy books. And uh, you can follow me on, on Twitter. It's at Paulinep, P A U L I E K N E P.
1: Paul, this was an absolute blast, man. Go, Nick's. And thank you again for coming on.
0: Thanks, Mike. Go, Nick's. See you later, pal. Bye.